They are 11 warriors. No, they are the 11 warriors. The most disciplined and the toughest damn dudes you're ever going to be around. Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom coming off of what was certainly the biggest test of the season to date for Ohio State as they played Penn State in Happy Valley. Buckeyes were never in control of a game until until late. They actually trailed in the fourth quarter with about nine minutes to go, then rattled off four touchdowns in the span of about six minutes to ultimately take control of a game and win 44 to 31. A little bit closer game than we expected. Certainly a game that I, I had my doubts at times whether Ohio State would actually win the game. But we did say last week we were going to learn something about Ohio State on Saturday. And I think we certainly did both good and bad. Yeah, Dan, it was another game here, the second in a row, where the final score doesn't quite tell you like everything that happened in this one. Like you mentioned, you know, Ohio State got the ball back. The offense did with you know nine or so minutes to, to go in that one. Trailing by five points, Penn State had just gone up 21 to 16, I believe it was. And I really had my doubts on that. To start that drive, I was like, you know, Ohio State can't get anything going on the ground. And, you know, Penn State's going to be expecting the pass here as well because of that fact, I feel like. But, but that was the exact moment in time in which everything changed for Ohio State. You know, C.J. Stroud got it going with some some big plays, you know, down, down the field uh, passing the ball. Then Travion Henderson finally got it going on the ground as well. And, Dan, it wasn't just the offense either because, of course, you know, and we'll get into this a, a lot more, J.T. Tuimoluau had, you know, a, a, a touchdown of his own on defense and really helped Ohio State uh, win that game in the end. Yeah, I think, you know, t- to me, I think certainly the turning point of that game was the fourth quarter, Penn State takes a lead. They go up. I'm trying to check the math to make sure I have the numbers right. You know, they they go up. They take a 21-16 lead with, with 9.26. To, that was after a long drive. Ohio State almost got off the field on a missed field goal. Then they g- commit a penalty. Penn State ends up going for it on fourth and one and then ends up scoring a touchdown. Penn State takes the lead at that point in the game, 21-16. And in my mind, I'm thinking this this might be a loss for Ohio State, like just the way the game had been going. They really hadn't consistently gotten anything going all, all day. And it just felt like this might not be Ohio State's day. And then for Ohio State to then march right down the field, 35 seconds later, Travion Henderson scores a 41-yard touchdown run. And then... Penn State gets back on the field. JT Tuomolowau forces what at that point had been his third turnover of the day. Knocks the ball out of Sean Clifford's hands. He recovers his own fumble. And then on the very next play, Kate Stover runs through three defenders, scores a 24-yard touchdown. I think that minute there, you just saw, you know, really Penn State had had momentum really for, for most of the game. I think I think going back to the end of the first half when Ohio State had a chance to take the lead, instead of kicking, they go for it. C.J. Stroud gets sacked on the final play of the first half. Penn State takes that lead into halftime. Actually, the same exact score, 14-13, that Michigan led by at, at halftime a year ago. And then, you know, I, I felt like Penn State kind of sustained that momentum, you know, throughout most of the second half. I mean, even when Ohio State took the lead in the third quarter, Ohio State had had to settle for a Noah Ruggles field goal, 16-14. Ohio State had only scored a touchdown on one of its first nine possessions, and it just felt like things were not clicking for Ohio State. And then, you know, for them to have that sequence where they scored two touchdowns in less than a minute, that was the first time in that game where I really felt, okay, I think Ohio State is going to win this game. And then Ohio State was able to build on it from there. Yeah, Dan, it seemed like that that goal line possession we were talking about for Penn State where, you know, Ohio State gave them another crack at, at scoring the touchdown and they ended up, you know, doing exactly that. You know, T- Tommy Eichenberg had a kind of a missed tackle on that play as well in the fourth down. That that seemed like at that point, like, oh, that we're going to circle the, the, that, the special teams penalty there. We're going to circle the, the Eichenberg, you know, missed tackle in the backfield. And that's going to be the perhaps the story of this game. But then just all the scoring that happened after that, Dan, I mean, before... That score by, by Penn State that we just talked about, there have been six scores, I think. One, two, three, four, five, six total scores in the game, including that fourth quarter touchdown by Penn State. There was there were seven scores after that point, Dan. And even in the final three minutes of the game, there were three scores. I missed you know, all of those, I think, because 
I was going down to, to you know, the, the press conference room at that point, leaving the press box. And so I didn't even see JT's, you know, interception as it happened. And I'm, I'm kind of, I got in the, you know, the press conference room. I'm looking at the box where I'm like, how, how did the, how did those point totals, you know, get that, that large that quickly? So it was really, you know, a tale of, of kind of everything that happened before that, that Penn State score in the fourth quarter and everything that happened after that. But, you know, as you mentioned there, JT was making a huge impact before that and after that, I mean, in, he, in his performance was in, in a lot of ways the story of that game. And like you said, that, that that defensive touchdown there really put a stamp on things for the Buckeyes. Yeah, there were only 30 total points scored in the first three quarters. There were 45 points scored in the fourth quarter. So, you know, if you had the under in that game, you were probably feeling good going into the fourth quarter. And then it all kind of blew up there in the fourth quarter. Actually, the highest scoring quarter in the history of the Ohio State Penn State series and, and and just another chapter in in what has been a a, a fat I mean year in and year out you know we, I mean we talked about it last week like we we both thought that Ohio State was going to cover a spread but y- you look at the history I mean this is now the seventh straight game between Ohio State and Penn State that has de- been decided by thirteen points or fewer so it just seems like every year when these two teams meet no matter what the score is supposed to be on paper. It always ends up being competitive. Of course, the important thing for Ohio State is they've won the last six of those games. And so it, it, it was close, but, you know, kind of like, you know, I, I, I feel like I look back at the game kind of similarly to how I look back at that first game against Notre Dame, where it's like Ohio State was tested. Like, clearly some some flaws were explode exposed in Ohio State and we're, we're going to get into some of maybe even, you know, imperfections might be a better word than flaws for, you know, some of the things that Penn State was able to take advantage of that other teams Ohio State had played weren't necessarily capable of taking advantage of. But at the end of the day, Ohio State still found a way to win. They still, when, when the game was really on the line, Ohio State found a, found a way to win. And that's ultimately what's most important as Ohio State now enters no with an eight and zero record and still controlling its destiny in terms of achieving all the goals it wants to achieve this year. Yeah, it wasn't quite the the entertaining thriller that you know the, the 2017 or 2018 games were in this you know series between Ohio State and Penn State. But as we mentioned, there, there were certainly moments there when even you know I was was really thinking that Ohio State might go down in that contest. But of course, a couple of you know monster individual performances really helped Ohio State pull through in the end as well. We just mentioned JT, but how about Marvin Harrison Jr. as well continues to look like, you know, perhaps the best receiver in the entire country, you know, in, in just his second year here. He ends up having a career high day with both 10 catches and 185 yards. You, know, you, you might remember his his Arkansas State game, he had 184 yards, you know, this one against some higher level competition, topping that performance by one yard. Didn't have a touchdown in this one, Dan, but, you know, with, with the production that he, he put up and, and some of those big plays he made, particularly late, kind of setting Ohio State up to score in the end. His performance was huge for the Buckeyes, especially because, you know, for most of the game, a lot of guys really couldn't get it going. I mean, Emeka Ibuka, I think his, his first, through his first four receptions, he was sitting on negative yardage with some of those screens that Ohio State was calling and things like that. And as we mentioned, Travion Henderson was, was averaging like 1.9 yards per carry up until he got things going in that stretch in the fourth quarter. C.J. Stroud, you look, you look at the final numbers for C.J. Stroud and you know, he ended up having a, a ton of yards, a 354, only seven incompletions as well, no turnovers for Stroud. Uh, but, but he really had to lean on Harrison and, and Cade Stover as well. But pr- primarily, Dan, especially early on when Ohio State couldn't get much going, Harrison was the guy for Ohio State. Yeah, for a good chunk of a game, Harrison had, you know, well over half of Ohio State's total yards of offense. It didn't quite turn out that way because, you know, Henderson was able to break off a couple longer runs. You know, like you said, Cade Stover made... Uh, a big play at the end. You know, Mecca Buka finally broke through with a longer catch late in the game to set up one of Ohio State's final touchdowns. And so, you know, at the end of a game, everybody else's stats kind of started looking better. But for a good portion of the game, really the only thing that was consistently working for Ohio State was Marvin Harrison. And it was, it, you know, it was kind of the same play over and over again. It was a lot of slant over the middle. You know, somebody made the comment to him after a game something along the lines of, you know, if it threw that pass 25 times, he probably could have had 400 yards. And, you know, rewatching that game, it certainly looked that way because it just seemed like every time they were running that route with him, he was winning, he was getting open. You know, they couldn't cover him. And, you know, I think he's really, he really has has established himself as as a superstar 
wide receiver in college football. I think, you know, with Jackson Smith and Jigba out, he certainly has established himself as the WR1 for uh, Ohio State, you know, really being that, you know, go-to guy, especially uh, when the game is on the line. You know, as you mentioned, you know, no touchdowns, but all of his catches went for first downs. Three of them were third down conversions. One of them was a fourth down conversion. So he came through with a lot of clutch plays. You know, Ryan Day also specifically praised his toughness. We saw, you know, after one of his third down catches, he kind of landed hard on his shoulder and he had, you know, he he said after the game that he really couldn't feel his arm there for a minute. And so he had to leave the game. But, you know, he came right back in three plays later and, and they threw to him again on the next play. So, you know, I, that tells you, you know, how important he is to the offense, especially without Jackson Smith and Jigba. And, you know, he's a guy that I think he's put himself very firmly in the conversation for, you know, potential All-American honors, potential Belitnikoff Award winner. You know, I think right now, you know, if I was going to pick who's a Belitnikoff winner, I, I'd probably have to go with Jalen Hyatt from Tennessee. He leads the country of, with 14 touchdowns, also has close to 1,000 yards already. And so I think he, you know, he's probably the guy right now who's in, in the pole position to be the Belitnikoff Award winner this year. But I think Marv's right behind him, number two. I think, you know, he, he certainly had that kind of year where he has established himself as one of the elite wide receivers in college football. He was one of just two receivers along with Hyatt, who was on the list of Maxwell Award semifinalists that were released on Tuesday. And so he's certainly proven that he's an elite player, somebody who is going to make a lot of money a couple of years from now, as you know, I think he he's putting himself in a position where he might end up being the best NFL prospect of all these receivers, as good as Wilson and Olave were, as good as Smith and Jigba is. I think the way Marvin's on the kind of trajectory right now where where he might end up being the top prospect out of all of them. Yeah, and how about the resurgence of Farmer Gronk in this game as well? Because ever since he caught those two touchdowns against Wisconsin, you know, in that, that Big Ten opener for Ohio State, he had some some quiet games, especially in terms of, you know, catching the ball downfield and everything. That's why, you know, at that time we kind of said, as good as Kate Silver's been as a, as a real weapon in the passing game for Ohio State, I'm still maybe going to press the pause button on thinking that this this pace is going to continue for for Cade Stover in terms of catching touchdowns and making, you know, routine big plays in the passing game. But this was his best game probably since that one against Wisconsin because he ended up with six catches for 78 yards and a a huge touchdown for Ohio State as well. The second in that stretch there when they had four in the fourth quarter. And Dan, the the real highlight being, of course, that the 24 yard score, you know, most of that coming after the catch in which Cade Stover, you know, left three different Penn State defenders leaping at his ankles and coming up with, you know, not much there as he ends up pounding that ball into the end zone. And, and like I said, that was a huge one for Ohio State. But but Ryan Day also on Tuesday really credited Stover's leadership on the sidelines and his just his energy, his, his blocking as well. He referred to Stover's performance as unbelievable, as a matter of fact. And uh, yeah, he, he did it all for the Buckeyes. And you could tell why Stover was named a captain when you hear some of those things that Day said about his kind of demeanor and overall play in general. And that's basically the way Day has talked about Cade all season. Like you can just tell that Day is just so impressed with what he has seen from Cade Stover this year. And that he's a guy who I think internally Ohio State considers to be one of its best and most important both players and leaders. So I think everybody it's everybody in the program is really happy to see the kind of success he's having and, you know, really kind of shattering some of the stereotypes about Ohio State tight ends with the way he's playing this year. You know, just kind of an interesting comparison on his stats that, you know, through eight games this year, he actually has the same exact number of receiving yards and receiving touchdowns. It's 309 yards, three touchdowns, and just two fewer catches than Jeremy Ruckert had as Ohio State's starting tight end all of last season. So I don't say that to knock Ruckert. I say that as an indicator that I think Ohio State really is utilizing that tight end more in the offense this year. And I think that's a big credit to Cade for how well he is playing. Yeah, but then, you know, an area where Ohio State fell short for most of the game on Saturday was in the run game where it looked like, you know, coming out of the coming off of that Iowa game in which they only had 66 yards on 30 carries. We talked about it on here about how that was, you know, the second worst performance for Ohio State in the run game since 2011. They were on on pace to, you know, have an even less productive game on the ground for much of Saturday's contest. You know, they ended up after that kind of that burst there at the end. You end up with 98 yards on 26 attempts. That's an average of 3.8 yards per carry. So, 
you know, d- didn't end up looking quite as bad as it seemed like it was going to with, with Henderson really turning it on late, having that 41-yard touchdown there, having finishing with two touchdowns as well. He had 78 yards. But Dan, you know, how, how much of a concern do you feel like the run game is, despite the fact that it came alive a little bit late, the fact that, you know, two straight games now for Ohio State, the run game's really struggled. And, you know, this this was a defense that Michigan put up 400-plus yards on the ground against four touchdowns is when really dominated. We were looking at that as potentially an area for Ohio State to have success in this matchup, given that performance by Michigan. But it didn't really end up that way. Yeah, I think it's absolutely a concern now that two games in a row, Ohio State has struggled moving the ball on the ground. I mean, yeah, like you said, I mean, the, the Henderson's long run you know, makes that look better. If you, I mean, if you take that out, that'd be 57 yards on 25 carries. And so, you know, I think two games in a row now, it, it has been a problem for Ohio State, you know, being able to run the ball consistently, being able to stay on schedule. You know, I think that's more important than just looking at the, you know, overall yardage and big plays and whatnot. It's that ability to, you know, really be able to consistently get those tough yards and, you know, be able to stay on schedule. And, you know, we saw, you know, that was a struggle for Ohio State for most of this game, you know, and they tried to, you know, basically do bubble screens as an extension of a run game, and that didn't work. And so, you know, we've, we have we have seen, you know, two weeks in a row now that, you know, the, the running game just isn't performing as well as it did early in the year. And, you know, some of that is to be expected because they've played better competition, at least in terms of the defenses they've faced the last couple of weeks in Iowa and Penn State. But I think, you know, we, we mentioned it last week. Again, you, you circle that game up at the end of a regular season on the calendar, November 26th against Michigan. That's the kind of game that I look at and go, they, they've really got to be able to run the ball in that game. That's the kind of game where if, if they struggle to run the ball the way they have the last two weeks, it could make the difference between a win and a loss. And so uh, I, I do think that this is something that, you know, Ohio State's going to need to do a lot of work on here the next few weeks to, to make sure that they are able to consistently run the ball, you know. And I think, you know, I, I think there's a balance there too because I think, you know, you can make the argument if you just look at what Ohio State did at the end of a game of those last few drives and they really needed to win the game. It's like sometimes it feels like maybe Ohio State's making it too difficult on itself. Like they're passing the ball down the field so well that, you know, they're they're trying too hard with stuff like runs and bubble screens or if they would just pass the ball more, like they'd they'd probably have more success. And, you know, I think, you know, in, in, in regards to Saturday's game, you could certainly make that case with, you know, how well Marvin Harrison played and how well C.J. Stroud did throwing the ball. But I, I, I do think that it certainly is important when you look ahead to a game like Michigan game that, you know, Ohio State's going to have to be able to be balanced in that game, that they're going to have to be able to, you know, you know, they can't just be solely reliant on, on the passing game in that game. And so I, I think that this certainly is an area of it is going to have to be a point of emphasis here for Ohio State going forward. And we talked about the huge game that JT had, you know, a lot of defensive linemen and that one played really well for Ohio State. Zach Harrison getting that interception, you know, from that tipped pass by JT as well. But but of, of course, Ohio State's defense did struggle a bit because Penn State put up more points and total yards on Ohio State than any team previously, you know, under Jim Knowles this season. And the main area we came into the game kind of circling as, you know, what is what is Sean Clifford and, and Parker Washington and some of these Penn State playmakers on offense going to be able to do against an Ohio secondary and really the, the cornerbacks in particular, you know, given that they hadn't played a lot of really good pass attacks this season. And, you know, while Penn State wasn't the most elite in the country or anything like that, we certainly knew that they had the the capacity to test the Ohio State pass defense. And it certainly did, Dan, because Clifford ended up with 371 yards, three touchdowns. Of course, he did have those three interceptions, which, you know, kind of helped Ohio State to kind of curtail the impact there. You know, 47 pass attempts is, is a lot as well as, as far as that's concerned, but they certainly did get tested. And, and Parker Washington as well, He's he is now like a, a guy that you can just kind of pencil him in for having a huge game against Ohio State, I guess, because he finished with 11 catches, 179 yards, and a touchdown. Of course, it didn't cost Ohio State, you know, the, the win in the end, but it, it, it certainly looks like something where that's an area that teams are going to try to attack Ohio State if they have the matchups to do so. Yeah, I mean, I've said it all along that I really wasn't buying the, you know, how good the stats looked for pass defense just because I felt like Ohio State had played a lot of teams with bad passing offenses. And so I think, you know, this was the best 
passing offense Ohio State had faced. I mean, I mean, Sean Clifford takes a lot of heat, and he had a far from perfect game, as evidenced by his four turnovers in that game. But I, I thought, other than the turnovers, I thought he played pretty well. I mean, I, again, I mean, that's a big, that's a big over. Like if we're if we're a Penn State podcast, we'd probably be focusing more on the turnovers than anything else because that's a big over. But you know, I thought other than those turnovers, I thought Sean Clifford played a pretty good game. I thought he made some nice throws. Like you said, Parker Washington played well. Definitely, I think, the best overall assortment of weapons that Ohio State had faced this year. And I and I think we saw that, you know, when they went up against some better, better talent, that, you know, their DBs did have some struggles. You know, I thought Denzel Burke played well as he has the last couple of weeks. I mean, he didn't really give up much. I thought he played well, but I think certainly Cameron Brown was missed in this. I think, you know, J.K. Johnson, you could see his inexperience out there, really the biggest test he'd faced yet in his career, and he had some struggles. Jordan Hancock, he he had some good moments, but also had some, some mistakes as well. You know, being a, a young guy who was playing in just his second game of a season, so you would expect that, but I think they certainly missed Cam Brown's presence back there. You know, I thought, you know, it, it was not Tanner McAllister's best game. He 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 gave up some plays. Lathan Ransom did as well. I do think it was probably Ronnie Hickman's biggest game of the year. I think that kind of speaks to the fact that they were going up against better talent, or I think, you know, for the most part this year, they haven't needed Hickman to do as much as he was doing last year because the defense in front of him ha- has been better. But I think in a game where they really did need Ronnie Hickman to step up and make some plays, he showed that he could. And so I thought I thought Hickman and Burke did a good job in, in the secondary, but I think other than them, uh, I don't think it was a great game for anybody else on, on the back end of a defense. And, and I do think, you know, that that's a concern that's going to linger for me again. I mean, this week against Northwestern, next week against Indiana, probably not really going to be tested. Maryland, that 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 could be more of a test with Talia Tagovailoa and the receivers they have there. So we'll kind of see how they do there in, in a few weeks in that regard. But, you know, I, I do look right now and I go, you know, after that game, I, I feel like, okay, like there, there's, there's, there's two areas of concern right now, I think, for this Ohio State team. You know, you know, not just two. Like, I mean, like certainly like special teams could be a concern with some of the issues they've had there, and they can be better in all areas. But when I just look at, like, you know, what are the biggest concerns of this team right now, you know, it, it's the rushing offense and the passing defense. Like, I think we all agree that their passing offense is elite. Could be even better if they get Jackson Smith and Jigba back, but it, it's already elite passing offense. I think their, their run defense is great, but I think you know, you could you could see against better competition that the rushing offense and the passing defense are still areas of concern. I mean, I, again, I don't think I don't think Ohio State is bad in any area. I think you know that's why we're talking about them as a national championship contender because I don't think they're a bad team in any area. But I think those are the two areas right now where I go, okay, is Ohio State national championship caliber in those areas? I don't think they were on Saturday. That doesn't mean they won't be or can't be but I did look at both of those I did come away from that game looking at both of those areas and saying okay Ohio State's gonna need to be better than that against Michigan against the teams they might face in the CFP and if Ohio State could only fix one of those areas if they could be you know like you said a national championship team in one of those two areas which which do you think is kind of the more important area for them to shore up I mean, I, I think I go back to the, the past defense because you just think about, like, again, think about a hypothetical matchup of a team like Tennessee. If Ohio State can pass the ball as well as it typically passes the ball, it's it's going to score points against everybody at, at some point. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think their passing offense is, is going to make them tough, tough to keep down in, in, in any game. And, and I think... You know, I, 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 I do think the running offense is going to be better than it's been. I mean, we still saw them make some big plays in that regard. And so I think it's an issue, definitely. But I don't I don't look at like what's happened in the run game the last two weeks and see that as a fatal flaw. I, I do think the pass defense like it, 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 that has to be at a certain level or, you know, you, you go up against a team like a Tennessee and you could be in real trouble. And so I personally look at the pass defense to me as still being the biggest question mark on this team. You make a good point, Dan, because, you know, like you said, 
even with the run game struggles the past couple of weeks, Ohio State's managed to score, you know, 54 against Iowa and 44 against Penn State. So it certainly feels like this is a team that's going to get points sooner or later, you know, whether that comes with the run or obviously with C.J. Stroud in the pass attack. But Dan, let's talk about another, you know, somewhat controversial topic from the Penn State game, because I know, you know, I'm, I'm sure you did. I certainly saw a lot of it. People really criticizing some some of the play calling decisions from Ryan Day, particularly early on while things weren't going very well. You mentioned those bubble screens. There was a, were several, you know, negative yardage plays, both in the run game and the pass game there. You know, as people were kind of breaking down. Also, I saw on Twitter the play calls and, and, and what the decision was, you know, out of a certain look. So, so for example, when something Ryan Day got asked about in Tuesday's press conference was, you know, running the ball every time Ohio State was in the pistol. I've seen people calling the, the, the play calling predictable, Dan, as well. What do you make of some of those claims? Is that kind of overblown? I know in the past we've talked about you know, anytime Ohio State has has any struggles on offense, it seems like people start criticizing Ryan Day a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's it's one of the best country or offenses statistically in just about every category. So, you know, what do you kind of make of, of some of those, you know, things that have been thrown at Ryan Day this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I hate playing armchair play caller because I, I I can't I wouldn't be able to do it. Like I I, I wouldn't be I like to think I know football. But I would not be able to go in and, and call a football game right now and call plays. Like I just don't I I don't have that level of play calling expertise that I would be able to go do that. And so I, I hate playing arm armchair play caller for that reason because it's it it's much harder than in sitting and playing Madden and calling plays on Madden to call plays in an actual football game. And so that's why I'm always hesitant to be the person who is gonna criticize play calling or you know other people out there might feel more comfortable doing that you know especially if they have any coaching experience for me I don't have any coaching experience and so for me you know that that's always a tough area for me to you know really critique you know I I, I certainly think that you know there's some fair questions to be asked about you know like you said I mean the, the, the bubble screens that you know just were not working to Emeka Abuka there you know early in that game you know I mean the, the the predictable thing, I, I, I just don't really see that because to me, they've, they've had different wrinkles in there every week. And so I, I, I don't I really don't see the whole predictable thing with the offense. It was it was clear Ryan Day took offense to the idea that, you know, the, 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 the pistol being too predictable because he was after getting a few questions about that, he was his, his response was about as defensive as I've ever seen him in a press conference, to be quite honest, where basically he said, yeah, well, we, we ran out of it five times and four of them were effective. And so what's the problem there? So, you know, I mean, I think that's fair. Like if it, if it worked, like, you know, what's fair to scrutinize if it worked? Like, I think it makes more sense to scrutinize, you know, the screens that didn't work. You know what I mean? Like, I think some if something worked, like, you know, and he even kind of made that point of a radio on Monday night where he's like, I've learned uh, in my career, the plays that work are great and the plays that, that don't work are bad. So, you know, that that's kind of a way it, it tends to be. But, you know, it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't think it was Day's best game, certainly. I mean, I think for me, if there's one thing I look at that to me, I, I really questioned w- was his decision at the end of the first half where he opted to go for it with six seconds left rather than kick a field goal and, and take the lead into halftime. And, you know, basically both him and CJ Stroud said that there was a miscommunication between them on that play to where Day wanted CJ to throw a quick fade into the end zone to where even if he didn't complete a pass, there would be time for them to send a field goal team out for the last play. Stroud was looking to hit a slant to Emeka Abuka and basically, basically a blitzer came unblocked and he got sacked. And so, you know, it, it was one of those things where, you know, m- you know, maybe again, if it worked, he'd look like a genius for doing it. Like here's this ballsy call that Ryan Day made and it worked and Ohio State takes a bigger lead into halftime. And so it's always easy to second guess those things. But, you know, even Day himself, it, it acknowledged after a game that, you know, that was a mistake, that, that they should have just... They should have just taken the points and taken the lead into halftime. So to me, if there's a coaching decision that I would really scrutinize in that game, it, it was that one because I think had Ohio State lost that game and had they lost by a close margin, 
we would have been talking a lot about that, those free points that, that Ohio State very clearly left on the table there. I, I think some of the play calling stuff, you know, to be truthful, some of that just goes above my head to where I don't feel like I am quite qualified to sit here and nitpick every play call that Ryan Day makes. Yeah, I do wonder too, because we, we talked to Kevin Wilson going into the Penn State game and he was talking about how talented that Penn State secondary was and, and talking a lot about how you know Ohio State can't get greedy against a secondary like that that has so much talent back there. You know, Joey Porter at, at six foot two. You know, obviously the secondary couldn't slow down the, uh, a guy like Marvin Harrison all that much with his huge game. But I think a lot of people were, were thinking like, you know, Ohio State needs to, to, to push the ball, you know, over the middle of the field, downfield a little bit more in the passing game because, you know, like I said, the, the running game wasn't working and they were kind of trying to, to get some stuff on the outside with some of those screens and things like that. And so I do kind of wonder if that was, you know, an, an approach on, on their end of saying, okay, let's not try to, to get too greedy early on in this one. But we did see some of those, you know, downfield passes open up as, as things went on. And I think we did see the impact of injuries in this game going against better competition. You know, I mentioned Cam Brown earlier. I think they missed him. You know, I think they missed Jackson Jigba. Like, I think it's very possible that some of those screens that didn't work, maybe they do work if you have Jackson Smith and Jigba out there. I mean, I think Emeka Buka is a great player, but I think we've seen that, you know, in some of that short area stuff, that Jackson Smith and Jigba can be downright special. And so I think, I think they missed him in this game in terms of some of the stuff that they can do in the short or intermediate passing game with Jackson Smith and Jigba that maybe their other receivers aren't quite as good at. Not to say they aren't good, they're they're great receivers, but I think Jackson gives them something a little bit extra in that area of a game where I think, you know, going against better competition, you could see where, okay, like this is where Jackson Smith and Jigba could really help this team. And, you know, both Ryan Day and Brian Hartline expressed confidence on Tuesday that JSN will play again this season. Ryan Day did not want to get into any specifics on any injuries on Tuesday. And so when he'll be back, who knows? I mean, my feeling at this point, just based on, you know, the buzz that seems to be out there about Jackson is the hope would be get him back for the Michigan game. Like, I, I don't think he'll play this week. I don't think he'll play next week because quite frankly, I don't think there's any reason for him to play the next couple of weeks. And I think Ohio State, certainly this week going into Northwestern, should take a cautious approach with anybody who's dealing with injuries. You know, this is not the week to rush guys back. And so, you know, would not be surprised if, you know, Jackson and Jigba and, and Cam Brown and, and, and Mayan Williams as well are, are all sidelined this week. Ryan Day did say that, that Mayan's injury is, quote, not serious. He indicated that that injury was actually caused by the chain on the sideline being in the way and, you know, Mayan running into that. And and so, you know, he didn't want to get into specifics. It, it looked as though Mayan had both hand and knee injuries, but, you know, sounds like he'll be okay. You know, but again, I think he was missed as well because I just think I mean, we, we've talked about it all year. I just think, you know, if you're talking about a play-to-play basis and just staying on schedule and getting those tough yards, I just think Mayan has been better than Travion in those situations. You know, Travion has that home run hitter ability, and we saw that. I mean, he 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 made that home run play there in the fourth quarter. It was very crucial to the game. But I just think Mayan has been better in those, you know, between the tackles, running situations, those, you know, get, you know, just cons- more consistently getting those tough yards. And so I think he's a guy I look at, you know, especially you think about Michigan game. You you'd really, I mean, you want to have both of them healthy, but you really want to have Mayan healthy for that game. Yeah, look, looking into into this week, though, I think Ryan Day repeatedly talking about how Dallin Hayden and, and Chip Tranum, you know, th- th- that those guys were going to get on the field makes me feel more confident that that they might just, you know, hold off on on rushing uh, Mayan back for Northwestern given the caliber of opponent there. But definitely a good sign for Ohio State that, that you know, Day said that, that Mayan's injury was not serious. Obviously, it looked like he had both a, a hand and a knee injury coming out of there, so it, it did kind of seem troublesome. And like you said, uh, Williams just gives Ohio State a, a change-up gear in the running game from Travion Henderson. Before we get into Northwestern, I, I feel like we kind of glossed over JT. Like, yeah. let's talk a little more about JT, because like this guy had, some people are saying, you know, could be the greatest individual defensive performance we've seen in Ohio State history with as well as he played in that game. I mean, he forced four turnovers. He had two interceptions by himself, one of which he returned for a touchdown. He forced a fumble and then recovered that fumble by himself. And then he also tipped the pass 
that Zach Harrison intercepted. So Ohio State won before turnover battle four to nothing, and JT was responsible for all four of those takeaways. He also had three tackles for loss total, including two sacks and and six total tackles. And, you know, we had talked about it with JT. You had written about it a couple weeks ago about how, you know, he he's played well, but he it really hadn't shown up at all on the box score. And then kaboom. I mean, it couldn't have showed up bigger on the box score in this game. Oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about, at least for me, Dan, in terms of my you know few years covering the team here, you go back to a game like the, the Wisconsin game in the regular season with Chase Young had the, the four-sack game, I believe it was, and that kind of stands out in your mind and you think about individual defensive performances, particularly on the, on the defensive line. But this one, Dan, I think really goes above and beyond that performance by Young because of the, the turnovers that were created. It wasn't just, you know, getting a sack. It was scoring a touchdown and, and, and giving the Ohio State offense the ball back in, in plus territory and setting them up to to do, you know, good things on that that side. And just also the the versatility of his different plays that he made, Dan. I mean, you know, the, the one interception, he, he had like dropped back a little bit in coverage to to and, and jump that route a little bit to pick that one off. And then, you know, tipping a ball the line of scrimmage, you know, getting the, the, the strip sack as well. Like he just did so many different things and it was such a dynamic performance because of that. And as crazy as it as it you know sounds to to just immediately you know a, a anoint something as the greatest you know defensive performance in the history of Ohio State football, which you know goes back so so long, such a storied history. I, I can't say that I've necessarily seen one better than that. Then, yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, it, to me, it's like okay, I I haven't watched every game in Ohio State football history, so say that like it still feels a little bit too bold for me to to say it, just like not having seen all the history of Ohio State's games but yeah I mean I, I I that was the other game that I thought of as well that Chase Young game against Wisconsin where he was just downright dominant and I think th- this game is is right up there with bad is certainly since I've been covering Ohio State the two greatest individual defensive performances I've seen and I mean you know I think the, the thing that amplifies this one even more is that the, I mean I think you can absolutely say that there's a good chance Ohio State does not win this game without the plays that JT made. I mean, that's that's how big they were. They, they led to 21 points in a game that Ohio State won by 13. And so I think without the plays JT made in that game, there's a good chance Ohio State loses that game. I mean, I think his the, the impact he made on that game was absolutely an enormous without a doubt the mvp of a game i think he swept all the the major awards this week for defensive player of a week and you know we've had kind of some fun all year with that alpha dog conversation well you know he was certainly the alpha dog on saturday there's no doubt about that but i think you know what i really take away on that point with you know you look at what we talked about how great zach harrison was a week ago you know and how great jt was this week you know how great Mike Hall was in the first half of a season. And I think what we've seen is that, okay, this really isn't a unit that has just one alpha dog. This is a unit that has a lot of great players. And we've seen now, you know, especially the last three games, I think between Mike Hall, Zach Harrison, and, and JT, that there's a lot of different guys who can step up and have a really big game that day. I mean, we, we've been waiting to see that kind of performance from JT, just like we have been waiting to see that performance from Zach. I mean, I remember, you know, when we had our mid-season show, that was one of the biggest things we talked about is one of the groups we really wanted to see step up was that defensive end group. Would some of those guys become stars? And now we've seen two guys in that group have been able to do it in back-to-back weeks, as well as, you know, I think another guy that we should, you know, acknowledge as well that had a really good game against Penn State was Tyleek Williams, because I think he's another guy that people have kind of been like, where's Tyleek? Why isn't he playing more? He played his most snaps of a season and he took advantage. Season high five tackles, including a sack and a, a very key fourth down stop early in the second half that, that he got Penn State off the field without points in Ohio State territory. And so, you know, I think you know, we're, we're seeing more and more guys step up on that defensive line. And I think that's exactly what we needed to see from that group, because I think we still kind of felt like it midseason, like, OK, they're playing well, but we're not seeing guys really take over the game. Now it feels like they have several guys who are capable of taking over a game on any given day. Yeah, it was you know interesting to, to think about how things would play out with the defensive line because coming into the season, you know all the talk from the preseason within the program itself, but then you just look at you know the, the five star talent on that defensive line and everything and, and how the, the the stats and, and you know the 
production would play out. And it, it's been less of like a, a consistent thing where, where you, like with the, the wide receiver group, for example, another, you know, position group that's thought of as, you know, this is star-studded group for Ohio State, whereas where you see a guy like Marvin Harrison and really, you know, consistently putting forth those huge numbers. With the defensive line, it's more like, you know, it, it could be a different guy every single game. And, and recently, it, that has been exactly how it's been, is that just a different guy from that group might have the huge game, might have the hot hand on any particular day. And I think that's a very scary proposition for opposing offenses. All right. Ohio State plays Northwestern this week. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this game because let's just be honest. Northwestern is bad. This is a team. They haven't won a they. You told me these stats the other day. They haven't won a game since in either September or October. And they have not won a game on American soil this year. Their only win this season came in week zero in August in Dublin, Ireland, when Northwestern beat Nebraska. Since then, Northwestern has lost seven games in a row, including losses to Southern Illinois and Miami of Ohio. And here's a staff that, that sticks out. They gave up 33 points in 398 yards this past weekend to Iowa in Anybody listening to this podcast who's an Ohio State fan saw how bad Iowa's offense was when Iowa played Ohio State two weeks ago. And so you just look at this team's numbers across the board. They're 90th in total offense, 122nd in scoring offense, 94th in total defense, 83rd in scoring defense. Ryan Day seemed very relaxed during his press conference on Tuesday and made probably the least effort I've seen all year to really try to, like, spin up the opponent and I think that's just 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 being realistic here you know not not trying to be disrespectful to Northwestern but just the reality that you know this is a team that is not playing good football this year and the only team that's going to beat Ohio State on Saturday is itself because this game really should not be close in any way yeah Dan you definitely got the feeling listening to Ryan Day and kind of seeing his mood that you know, it, it was a relief to get past Penn State there. You know, they're the their toughest opponent, certainly on paper by far, and that's how the game played out as well. Now you've got, you know, three games that Ohio State really should, you know, potentially dominate here, specifically Northwestern, as you just talked about it. They're on the verge of their longest losing streak in 29 years, the longest in the Pat Fitzgerald era. And, you know, they might end up not winning another game after that season opener. As a matter of fact, when you, when you kind of look at the, the numbers and everything like that. Dan, I think we should highlight, you know, maybe a couple standout performers here, particularly on the, the offense for Northwestern. Evan Hull last year, a running back. He had a thousand yard year last year. This year, he's like almost 50-50 on, on receiving yards and passing yards. He's already got over a thousand yards for, total for from scrimmage this year. He's definitely a playmaker to watch for that group. Whether or not he actually gets anything going remains to be seen. And then on the offensive line for Northwestern, they might actually have the best, you know, tackle in the country in Peter Skaronsky, who, who's, you know, possibly the, the number one ranked tackle in the, in the country right now in terms of pro football focus grades, in terms of pass blocking and stuff like that, you know, could be a top 10 pick, certainly a first round pick in the NFL draft. So it's not as though, you know, Northwestern is completely, you know, devoid of talent and things like that, but perhaps not enough talent or, you know, the things aren't, aren't crescendoing well here for, for Northwestern as they go up against, you know, the best team they'll, they'll play all season likely. And like you said, 33 points to Iowa. We spent so much time kind of crapping on the the Iowa offense and everything like that. And so when you see those numbers, to me that says there's no way I can pick Ohio State to score any any lower than 50 points against this Northwestern team. Yeah. They they have some good players, they just don't have enough good players. Yeah. That's just kind of the reality of it again. I mean, the, the 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 results really don't lie about how poorly this Northwestern team ha- has been playing. And so I don't see it being close, I, I think the last I checked, it was a 38 and a half point spread for uh, Ohio State over Northwestern. And I'm going to pick Ohio State to cover that. I'm going to go 52 to 7 for Ohio State in this game. We haven't seen Ohio State hold an opponent to single digits yet this year, but I think this is a week that Ohio State should be capable of doing that. Dan, I'm going to go 59-17 Ohio State. The, the only thing about the defense, I'll say, is that it just seems like teams just, you know, Ohio State can't quite shut a team completely out and things like that. So I, I still think Northwestern perhaps finds a way to, to have a few scores mixed in there. But yeah, I could I could imagine Ohio State scoring perhaps even more than 59 points, but you, but you never really know how much the, the dogs are going to be called off and things of that nature. But I think that sounds good, considering the fact that even on off days, Ohio State's putting up 54, 44 points against you know higher caliber competition, certainly defensively. 
And so I think 59-17 sounds good to me. Well, the new CFP rankings were announced on Tuesday night, and Ohio State ranked second in the initial rankings below Tennessee and above Georgia. Is that what you expected, Griffin, or are you a little surprised by that? I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest. But, you know, when you, you look at the Alabama win for Tennessee, you look at how that offense, you know, has been doing it and the fact that, you know, Georgia has had a couple of close-ish calls, you know. I think the the committee might not just be rewarding the the defending champion status there when it comes to Georgia and are, are seeing a Tennessee team that has a, a ton of momentum right now. And obviously with the offense they have, could be a team that challenges that, that, that you know, Georgia defense in, in that upcoming matchup. Yeah, truthfully, I thought Ohio State would be number three in the, the rankings. I had said that last week, but I thought it was most likely uh, Ohio State would be third. And, you know, just based on some of the stuff that we talked about before, I mean, the fact that Ohio State didn't dominate Penn State in, in that game, you know, I, I thought the committee may hold that against Ohio State and put Ohio State third in the initial rankings. But, you know, I think it's certainly a great sign for Ohio State to be second in these initial rankings because it shows how much they've impressed the committee with how dominant they've been. Boo Corrigan, the new chair of the selection committee, specifically noted on Tuesday night that the committee was impressed with Ohio State's explosive offense and its 32-point average margin of victory, which is the best in the country right now. And so I think it speaks to how impressive the Buckeyes have been so far this year. Uh, you know, realistically, it, it doesn't really matter who's one, two, and three this week because Tennessee plays Georgia this weekend, as you mentioned. And the winner of that game is going to be number one. I don't think there's any question about that. Even with Ohio State being above Georgia in this week's rankings, if Georgia beats Tennessee next week, Georgia's Georgia, I think, will certainly be number one. Obviously, Tennessee already having the resume to be ahead of Ohio State at, at number one. That's certainly not going to change if Tennessee beach Georgia this weekend. I think Ohio State can feel comfortable though knowing that if it keeps winning, it, it's, you know, sitting pretty for a, a top 2 seed, you know, obviously, you know, maybe you'd like to have the number 1 seed, maybe that gives you a more favorable matchup. That all of that's really out of Ohio State's control, but I think uh, Ohio State can know right now that it's it's sitting in a good position if it wins out to be a number 2 seed. Obviously, though, that's easier said than done, especially with that Michigan game at the end of a month. Yeah, a couple of the, the controversies or, or things that people you know might find polarizing about about some of these, whether it be the the Tennessee at number one or you know Michigan being under Clemson, something like that. You know, a lot of that stuff, like you said, it's going to work itself out because these teams, you know, some of these teams have to play each other. You you have you have Tennessee playing Georgia, you have Michigan playing Ohio State. Like anyone upset about you know Michigan spot or something like that they'll have a chance to 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 move up past Clemson and things of that nature. So I think, you know, as easy, it's, it's definitely easy to say, you know, kind of, you don't need to care about these things right now, but, you know, of course people are going to care because it, it's going to shape, you know, how things shake out here in the coming weeks. So huge game in the CFP race this weekend. Who have you got Griffin? You got the Bulldogs or the Vols? Man, it's, it really is tough. I think, I, I might honestly, like, as we talk about it now, I'm kind of buying in, buying into Tennessee a little bit right here. I mean, I don't know if it's just the the fact that, you know, maybe part of me wants to see a little bit of, you know, it's it's hard to call Tennessee new blood, but especially in the era of, of college football that, that I've really come up in, you know, Tennessee hasn't been the, you know, a major player, especially obviously in the CFP era and things of that nature. And so, you know, aside from Tennessee having this storied history and whatnot, there's something about Tennessee that feels fresh and the fact that they have such this high-flying offense, obviously Hendon Hooker leading that unit and the fact that they've already beaten in Alabama. But at the same time, it seems like Georgia has the tools, especially with that defense and everything like that, to potentially cancel some of those strengths out for Tennessee. But I think right now I'm I'm going to go ahead and, and pick Tennessee in that matchup, Dan. How about you? You know what? I'm going to go with Tennessee, too. I, I hedged on it last time. I, I'm not going to hedge on it this time. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pick Tennessee to win the game on, on Saturday. I just think right now they're playing like the best team in the country. Like, I think the number one ranking is deserved, especially, you know, the way they dismantled Kentucky this past weekend. I think I think Tennessee's playing really high level football right now. And I think there is a valid question about Tennessee's defense for sure. You know, I think if you just look at the numbers 
you know, Georgia is a more balanced team on on paper. And, you know, maybe Georgia's defense is good enough to cancel out what Tennessee's doing offensively. And and that can allow Georgia to win the game. But I, I just you know, Tennessee just seems to have something rolling right now. You know, I don't know that it would be good for CJ Stroud's Heisman hopes if Tennessee wins this weekend, because I think if Hendon Hooker has the kind of big game that leads Tennessee to a victory that he's going to put himself out in front as, as the front runner to win the Heisman trophy. but. I don't know. Some, some, something's just telling me that you know ten, Tennessee's going to keep it rolling this weekend and and get the win over Georgia. So we'll see. It's going to be a great game. You know, I we probably won't personally be able to watch it too closely because it's right after the Ohio State Northwestern game, and we'll be working on covering that. But it's certainly a game that I'm looking forward to seeing how it, it plays out as it has massive ramifications on the college ball playoff race. Yeah, and Dan, uh, that's that's the biggest one, but there are some other matchups this weekend with you know some very highly ranked teams in the the CFP rankings. We've got you know Alabama at LSU, LSU coming in at number ten in the the initial CFP rankings here, which you know I've I've certainly seen it has rubbed some people the wrong way on social media. Th- them being the the highest two loss team in the CFP rankings, six and two ranking ten there, and then also you've got Clemson at Notre Dame as well. Notre Dame. You know, picking up some momentum here. It's best win of the season against Syracuse this past weekend. Clemson's had some close calls. Clemson right now would be in the playoff at number four in the first CFP rankings. Dan, do you smell an upset in either of those matchups? I'm not going to pick an upset in either one of them, but they're both on my radar. I mean, I think, you know, again, we, we've seen Alabama you know, struggle against most of the good teams it's played. And so I think LSU is going to give Alabama a game. I'm, I'm not going to pick LSU to win that game, but I, I do think that LSU is capable of of giving Alabama another scare. And Clemson-Notre Dame, I mean, that's one of those games where I could really see it going in, in several different ways. I mean, if Clemson goes and blows out Notre Dame, I wouldn't be shocked just based on what we've seen, you know, the roller coaster kind of season Notre Dame has had. But I don't I'm not I'm not ruling out an upset in that one either because we've seen, you know, Clemson's been a bit uneven at times. You know, they've they they've won all their games, but they haven't been dominant. And so I don't rule out the possibility of an upset in either of those games. I'm not gonna go as far as to to pick it, but if if LSU or Notre Dame was to to win, I wouldn't be stunned. And Dan, any changes to your CFP picks after we got these this first slate of rankings in from the committee on Tuesday. Yeah, I, I think I'll stick with what I've had so far with you know Tennessee, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson. I mean, that's those are the top four right now, so I'm not really going out on any limb there and 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 sticking with you know those four being the most likely. But you know, I I, I think that you know it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens this weekend. I mean, my 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 opinion certainly could change next week just based on you know those games we talked about, and you know it. You know, I think we've, you know, when we when we had this discussion a week ago, I was of the mind that I was going to pick Georgia to beat Tennessee. And so, like, I think I maybe think it's more likely that Georgia would beat Alabama in the SEC championship game than Tennessee would beat Alabama again. And so, you know, I think that maybe brings that chaos scenario into play where, you know, if, if you know, tennis, Tennessee beats Georgia, but then Alabama beats Tennessee in the rematch in the SEC championship game. And now you've got three one loss teams in the SEC, potentially what happens there? You know, a lot, a lot could still happen between now and then, but you know, that's just one scenario that's on the table that could, could make things difficult for the college ball playoff committee. So I'm going to stick with, you know, the, the four that I've had, which are the top four in the rankings right now, but definitely fascinated to see how things play out this weekend. Yeah, Dan, that was the exact scenario I was thinking about when when pondering that question myself here, because, you know, at that point, if Alabama was to knock off Tennessee in the SEC championship game, that would mean that the Crimson Tide would have avenged its only loss of the season. Right. And especially it being, you know, much further along in the season and a lot of people's eyes that would kind of rectify that that one wrong that one wrong for Alabama. And then it's kind of hard to deny them right for a spot in the CFP, obviously. I don't know. And uh, so, and I, and I think that's, that's not an unlikely scenario at all. I mean, you know, I, I cannot discount Nick Saban and, and, you know, the, the possibility of a rematch, you know, and everything like that in, in such a matchup. And so that, that question is, is looming larger in my mind here as I kind of think about this stuff. Now, Griffin, you were at the shot 
on Tuesday night where the Ohio State men's basketball team played its only preseason exhibition game, a 101-57 win over Chaminade. What stood out to you most? I mean, I think first you gotta you got to give some credit to Tanner Holden coming off of the bench. Um, I know we've got listeners and 11 Warriors readers that were really high on Tanner Holden. You know, obviously an Ohio native coming out of Wright State transferring in. He did not start, Dan. I thought that was interesting. The the, the five starters being Bruce Thornton, Ice likely, both of those guys starting. You know, that was a question we had is, is one of those guys going to come off the bench with them being kind of the two point guards theoretically of the team? And then it was Bryce Sensabaugh, Zed Key. It's Sean been a McNeil. long day that helped me out here. Sean McNeil, yes. And so, yeah, you know, obviously Justice Suing and Eugene Brown did not play. Justice Suing still nursing a sprained ankle that, that Chris Holtman first brought up at Big Ten Media Days. He also said after the game that Suing did actually play in Ohio State's secret scrimmage against uh, Wake Forest the other day. He did play in that one, but he tweaked his, his same injured ankle. So that's what he's dealing with. Eugene Brown going through concussion protocol. So you kind of wonder how those two guys might you know, mix up that, that starting lineup. Honestly, Dan, I, I thought that, you know, seeing Ohio State versus Chaminade and seeing them without two, you know, their their longer wings ensuing and Brown, that Ohio State looked like they didn't have, like, and I, and I know this is this is going to be a smaller team and a more guard-oriented team, but especially with Zed Key at only 6'8 as the center on that team without those two players ensuing and Brown giving some some length and versatility on the wing. I was like, man, that they don't have like as much of a size advantage, you know, and a length advantage as as you might think against a, a division two team like Chaminade. And I know that was one thing that, that Chris Holman was really harping on after the game was he was really not happy with the rebounding performance for Ohio State. They gave up, I think, 16 offensive rebounds to Chaminade, a much, you know, a, a team that doesn't have the the size and athleticism of a lot of teams that Ohio State's going to face this season. So that was kind of one of the drawbacks. But but I think Tanner Holden scoring 25 points, that certainly impressed me. Chris Holman said that even if he's not starting the entire season, he's going to play starter-type minutes as well. Th- those are a couple of things off the top of my head, Dan. Yeah, I think, you know, Holden's performance is certainly intriguing. You know, we did our draft last week. I, I took him as the fourth player off the board. And I, I believe that he absolutely has a good chance to be one of Ohio State's best players uh, this year. I, I did find it interesting. I, I didn't actually see the Chris Holtman press conference, but I saw your tweets from it. And, and you mentioned that and said that Holden had struggled in that secret scrimmage and he did well in this game. And, and, that, and that the one thing that makes me think about is the fact that he's played at Wright State. We've seen him excel against lesser competition. But how is his game going to translate to playing against Big Ten competition? I think that's the big question with Tanner Holden. And so I think I look at that exhibition performance and say, like, that's a great start, but still got to see how he does when Ohio State actually plays better competition, because I think we already knew that he could score against lesser teams. It's a question of when he's playing and getting being guarded by big 10 defenders, is he going to be able to continue to score at that same rate? Yeah. That's the funny thing about, you know, us not having seen this, this team play together a whole lot is that there's a lot of unknowns as we've talked about, but just the, 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 the added perspective of, you know, if you were just going off the exhibition, you look at what Tanner Holden did, you'd say, Oh, wow. I mean, Tanner Holden, maybe he is, you know, as good as, as some people have said, and maybe he could be the leading scorer for this team, but then you get just the, the added perspective of, literally one other game that Chris Holman's talking about and saying that he really struggled offensively. And you're like, Oh, okay. Not so fast. You know, thing, a lot of things can change with a, with more of a sample size. And so I think, you know, we'll get a lot better idea of things like that. Once we see these guys get a few games under their belt, Dan, I think it was also notable that, you know, the two, the two true freshmen that started for Ohio state did struggle offensively, you know, especially scoring the ball. Bruce Thornton only ended up with two points for Ohio state one for seven from the floor. He did have 11 assists. Chris Holman said that he's been the most consistent freshman for the Buckeyes, which is you know why I picked him pretty highly in that, that team draft. Bryce Sensabaugh, he, he did get the start, so that was you know a positive for him, certainly. Starting over a guy like Tanner Holden, for example, finished with eight points, three for 11, though, from the field. He, he missed his first five shots, I believe. He had a couple of, of, of bad turnovers. He had another one where he almost turned the ball over again. So he seemed like he was kind of figuring things out there. Roddy Gale had the biggest 
game offensively for a freshman, 14 points on six of seven shooting. And Dan, how about Bowen Hardman, who came in, who didn't come in until the final nine, nine and a half minutes of the game. And, you know, Chris Holman has, has kind of come out and said, you know, four freshmen are going to play for this team. Bowen Hardman obviously being the one that the three-star recruit that is doesn't seem to be, you know, mentioned in that group. However, he comes in in like 15 seconds into, you know, him being on the floor. He knocks down a three. He ends up hitting, I think, three of his first four three-point attempts. Four of his first five has 12 points in, in just nine minutes of action, Dan. But then right after the game when Chris Holman was asked about Bowen Hardman, you know, could he earn more minutes if he has sharp shooting performances like this? Holman put a put a hard, hard closing of that door right away. And he said, Bowen Hardman only played that much because of the nature of the game and that he is not physically prepared to play on both sides of the floor at the Big Ten level. Yeah, so it's pretty clear that Bone Hardman's going to redshirt this year. I mean, it just seems to be pretty obvious the way that Chris Holtman is talking about him. I mean, it seems pretty obvious just based on the way they handled things in the exhibition that, you know, when healthy, the rotation could be 10 players. You know, I I think Kaylin Etzler is not in in that rotation right now. You know, Bone Hardman's not in that rotation right now. And so I think... You know, they, they, they've kind of got a core group of 10 guys who I think we could see all of them play fairly regularly, you know, when healthy. Obviously, in this exhibition, they didn't have either Justice Suing or Eugene Brown, so that limited rotation to eight. But it feels like, you know, there's 10 guys who, who can be in, in that rotation. Doesn't sound like Bowen Harmon will be one of those guys this year. But hey, you got to take advantage of your opportunity when you get it. And he certainly did that with 12 points in nine minutes. Yeah, Dan, I think a lot of people are going to come away from the, you know, exhibition with questions about Justice Suing's health moving forward because we saw last year how he was he was it was always like every week he's going to come back this season, he's going to come back this season. It never happened after those first two games. This one just an ankle sprain, so you you can't it shouldn't, you know, rule suing out for an extended period of time. But at the same time, you know, before the game, I was kind of told some things. I was I was told that if the season opener was on Tuesday, that Justice Suing would have played. But then after the game, hearing Chris Holman talk about Suing, he said that he's getting closer to the point of where he might play in the season opener, but it wasn't anything definite. It wasn't a it wasn't a complete, oh, this was just a total precaution. And, you know, it, it seemed like maybe he could miss the season opener. Actually, that was kind of the vibe I got from Chris Holman. But maybe, you know, he kind of learned from, he might have learned from last year where he was, he kept promising that suing was going to be back and he never was. And maybe he doesn't want to, you know, start that cycle again with, with justice suing, but I certainly don't think it's, you know, as much of a concern as last year's situation where Chris Holman said pretty early on in the season that it was a significant issue. I do have to give a shout out to our voters who I got 61.6% of a vote to win our basketball draft last week. I'll be honest. I, I didn't expect to win. I'll be honest. I thought you were going to win the draft. So thanks to our readers for, you know, believing in in my drafting and in, in, in my team. I do believe, you know, I do believe what I wrote that, you know, my team would have, you know, the size advantage and, and, and the scoring advantage. And, you know, I think at least in, you know, Tanner Holden's perspective, we saw, you know, the scoring that he could provide tonight. I think actually Tanner Holden, Zed Key, Roddy Gale, and Bowen Hardman were on my team. So I did I did have the, the top four scores in tonight's exhibition, but was honestly a little bit surprised that I that I won the draft, but I'll take it. Your team, your team definitely showed out in the exhibition, Dan. But I will remind you, like last year, you remember the exhibition? Uh, Michi Johnson had a uh, had a big exhibition, and that was I think we did the draft after the exhibition last year because I remember picking him quite highly. And that didn't end up panning out too well for me there. So, you know, things will definitely develop. I still like my team for sure. Um, but, you know, of course, two of my guys, Brown and Suing, didn't even play in the exhibition. So, you know, I didn't get the the full showcase there of what, you know, my side is capable of. But, yeah, your guys definitely showed out tonight. Tuesday we'll get a, Yeah, we'll get a chance to evaluate those players more in real games next week when Ohio State will open the season against Robert Morris on Monday. That will be followed by a game against Charleston Southern later in the week and then Eastern Illinois the following week after that. All home games for Ohio State's first three games of the season really shouldn't 
be tested in most games. I don't know that we're really going to learn a whole lot about this team until they go to the Maui Invitational in a couple weeks because all three of Ohio State's first three opponents are ranked 293rd or lower in the preseason Ken Palm rating. So none of those games should be close. If if they are close, then there will be reason for concern. But really, these first three games should be a warm-up for a team that quite honestly needs a warm-up because of how new most of the players on the roster are. Yeah, they're going to ease into things here a little bit, Dan. I think that's good for a team that has as many new new pieces and young players as this team does. And, you know, they do, they still do have, you know, Duke and North Carolina and, and challenges like that coming up before the start of the new year. So a lot of fun to be had with this team coming up here, even if the, these next few games aren't all that competitive on paper. Well, thanks for listening in to this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. We will be in Evanston for the game against Northwestern this weekend, kicking off at noon on ABC. So tune into that and check back with 11warriors.com for full coverage of Ohio State versus Northwestern. And we'll be back next week to talk about everything we learn over the next week. Thanks so much.